Our Father in heaven, I ask that by your Spirit you would join us during this hour, that you would give us more than just a smile. We're asking that you'd give us power to understand what is true, that you would give us your Spirit, that you'd take the thoughts I share that are most relevant to each one and impress them in such a way that they'll make an impact on the life. I ask that you would guide my thoughts, perhaps to plans and ideas I had no intention of sharing, if they would be the very ones you would choose to have shared. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Wow, Ico. Could you two men pass these out to the various people that are here? Yeah, she, you have to give the lady in blue who's walking out credit. She's, she's gone. Turn to me in your Bibles if you have a moment to do it to Revelation 3. We're talking today about understanding conversion. Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at verse 17. Revelation 3, verse 17, the last few verses, in the last few parts of the verse, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and what's the last word? Naked. Naked. It is a simple idea to me. Of all the metaphors, the last one is the most simple. If the church is naked, then she is not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If the church is not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, she's not converted. The other words mean the same thing. The wretched, miserable, poor, blind, they all mean the same thing. It's as if Jesus says to the church of of the judgment, you are an unconverted church. And he was very clear when talking to Nicodemus that except you be born again, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So when I say that we want to understand conversion, the change that takes place when the soul surrenders to God's will, when I say we want to understand conversion, what I mean is that we belong to a church that thinks that she is converted but is not. She's deluded on this point, and perhaps a better understanding of what the phrase means might help strip her of her self-delusion. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Thank you, Brother Brown, for sitting there. Can you hit the button for the next slide? Romans chapter 7. We're looking at verse 20. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's such an interesting verse. Can you see in this verse, it's almost like I'm two people. Like there's the me who doesn't want to do it, and there's the sin in me that does it. Verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. 
But I want to illustrate, and it's on the board, and it's over here in different colors. I want to illustrate or to show how Ellen White and the Bible teach the same idea about conversion, but how they use two different sets of words or phrases. Once I understood the two different ways they speak, it was easy to see how they complement each other. The words that are on the board right now are words that Ellen White uses. She speaks about the higher powers of the mind. She identifies those higher powers of the mind. They are the conscience, the reason, the judgment. Then she speaks about the lower powers of the mind, the appetites, the passions, the desires. When we say higher and lower, we're not speaking about holy and sinful. Who was it that gave man desires, appetites, and passions? You know, it was his intention. He gave them to us on purpose. It was no idea of God that the lower powers would be, would be what's the word, thought of as wicked. But in terms of authority, they were not to be the ones directing the will. Can you hit the next slide? The lower powers were created to provide motivation and pleasure. This is how God moves men. It's easy to illustrate this with, with the idea of eating. When I get hungry, I'm motivated to find food. However, if I see a frog jumping across the road while I'm hungry... I do not have any inclination to pick up the frog and eat it. That is, my hunger moves me to eat, but my reason, my conscience, and my judgment tell me what to eat. That is, the higher powers were created to guide the will. This is the way God leads men. Maybe I should pick a different illustration so you could see it in another way. My passions motivate me to find a wife. But they would be a faulty way for me to choose a wife. God gave me my conscience, my reason, my judgment to help me choose a wife. But if I didn't have my passions, I might never get around to doing it. Do you follow the relation between the lower powers and the higher powers? Do you see we need those lower powers? If we didn't have hunger then some type A personalities wouldn't eat. If we didn't have passions, then some business-like oriented people would not have children. God gave us passions to move us. The passions have another purpose too. Don't they increase our joy? Don't they allow us to benefit so that when my higher powers tell me that an apple is good to eat, it's not my higher powers that make it taste good. It's the lower powers of my mind. God made me as a whole person in a way that would work together well. You follow. Next slide. The Bible speaks about these same ideas, but with different terms. What does the Bible call the higher powers? It calls them the inner man. Are you still in Romans 7? Romans 7, let's look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after, what does it say? The inward man. The inward man is the Bible term for that part of me that delights in the law of God. 
my conscience, my reason, my judgment. We're going to look at another passage that uses that phrase. And then the lust of the flesh. So the word lust is broader than we typically use it today. Typically we use lust in terms of even morality. Is Let me start over the sentence. Lust is generic for desires, not specific for sensuality. The flesh is generic for those appetites, passions, and desires. And when the Bible talks about the lust of the flesh, it is God that gave us the flesh. It is God who gave us even the lusts. But he never intended that our lust or our flesh would be the guide. He intended that that inner man that delights in his law would be the guide. You can go to the next slide. So we're looking at Romans 7 and 8. We, did we read verse 19 already? Let's look at verse 19. For the good that I will to do, I do not, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. This is a law. This passage calls it the law of sin. What the law of sin says is that even though my judgment and reason and conscience say that it's better to do right, yet I end up doing wrong. I think we have had enough experience in life to identify with this reality. We can go to the next slide. You can't read that at all, can you? That's good. On your paper, it says the same thing. Done. Your paper actually has more things. Because I cut down a hundred and some slides. But anyway, you got it there somewhere. Um, the inner man, the will, the bondage, and the flesh. So, in Romans 7, the idea of the law of sin is that the flesh has become very strong by 6,000 years of habit. If I understand this correctly, I'm sure... I have this part at least right. The sins that my dad indulged in degenerated him, and I inherited some of that. Ditto my grandfather and great, great, and great, so on. I inherited a very strong set of appetites, passions, and desires. A set that was so strong that it utterly overpowers my will. So that my will, though I'm free to choose, I'm not really free to do. We can go to the next slide and hope for a better... (laughs) It's more readable, it is. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3 and verses 14 to 17. Ephesians 3 and verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might 
through His Spirit, what does it say? In the inner man. Why did Paul kneel in prayer? He knelt down to pray that the Father in heaven would send His Spirit to strengthen our conscience, our reason, our judgment. To so strengthen that inner man, those higher powers, what would be the effect? Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If I'm reading this verse correctly, Jesus cannot live in my heart while my will is in bondage to the flesh. If Jesus is going to live in my heart, the will must be set free. What does Jesus do to set my will free or what does the Father do? He sends the Spirit to strengthen that part of me, that conscience, that reason, that judgment, to such an extent that the will is no longer overpowered. I hope you can see in this illustration something I'm trying to communicate. Did I draw this as if the will is now in bondage to the inner man? You know, God has never offered to so strengthen the inner man that it would overpower the will. He's never offered to put you in the same kind of bondage to rightness that you were before Him in bondage to sin. What He has offered to do is to so strengthen this part of me, my higher powers, that my will is set free to choose. And then if I choose Jesus... He can dwell in my heart. I choose Him by faith. That's why it says, He dwells in my heart by faith. Next slide. I wonder if there is a way that we can dim the color. On, but are, are there any techno professionals here? I want you to see if you can help Him for a minute because I bet if we turn the color down, there's probably more than one slide that will have the same problem. Hey, the color even got better. You win. Okay. So, I'm content with this. All right, let's go with it. The law of sin and death says that captive men do wrong regardless of their will. This leads to death. This is where do you find the name of this law. Look at chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, and we're looking at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Do we understand this verse now, just thinking about it? What's the law of sin and death? It says that my will is stuck. It's called the law of sin because I want to do right, but I do wrong. It's called sin and death because when I do wrong, I die. And how do I get free from the law of sin and death? That's by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? It means the spirit strengthens my inner man so that Jesus can live in my life. And I'm set free. Next slide. So it's very clear in the Bible that no man can have two masters at one time. But you know, you certainly can have two masters one at a time. Do you understand what I mean by that? When sin rules the man, how does sin rule me? Sin 
makes its appeal to the lower powers. Sin, I'm speaking, I'm, I'm speaking of sin as if it has personality. Of course, that isn't so. But sin knows that it will never be able to attract my reason, my judgment, my conscience. Sin appeals to my lower powers. It tries to lead me to self-indulgence and overpower my will. I respond to it by self-indulgence. And if I indulge myself, where does sin have its throne? Sin rules from the flesh. There are many men alive who, if they were honest, would admit that the throne of their life is in their flesh. And from that throne, their life is ruled. How does Jesus rule the man? He, he appeals to the will by appealing, that's a typo, but it should say, by appealing to the will to follow, he appeals to the will. I don't know what I was trying to say there, but I know what I want to say. Say? He appeals to the will through the conscience. Yeah, exactly. He appeals to the will through the conscience. Appealing will to follow through the conscience. Men respond by faith. When Jesus rules me, where does he rule? It's from those higher powers that he controls the life. Next slide. How does temptation happen? We don't have to look this up because it's on the, on the board. But James 1.14 says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The idea I want to show is that Satan does not need to find evil desires to tempt a man. If we take the temptation of Adam and Eve as an example, Satan found no evil desires in Eve. What he did is he took a holy desire for, for personal growth, to develop knowledge, and put transgression in between her and her holy desire. So that to indulge the desire required doing some forbidden object. Do you follow what I'm trying to communicate? That the desired object doesn't have to be evil to have a temptation. You don't have to desire anything evil to be tempted. You only have to have a desired object that requires transgression to get to it. Adam, when he chose to do wrong, desired companionship with Eve. Was that evil to desire that? No, but to get it, he thought he had to go through transgression. It's the same with us. Satan is not handicapped just because we've set our affections on things above. Next slide. God, I know that looks funny to you, doesn't it? God-given lusts. I'm just trying to help you to understand to read that word well. God has given us desires. Desires for wisdom, for power, for love, for beauty. The purpose of these desires was to motivate us to move in a good direction, to move us to seek for truth, to seek for health, to move towards holiness, to seek for intimacy, to create a longing for a holy character. Can you understand how critical these desires were to holy living? 
it was part of God's plan that they would be there. Motive forces. Next slide. Satan has seeked to divert these very same desires. You see, Satan can't create a mind. The mind is a machine created by God. Satan could not like create new desires, new faculties of the mind, as if the mind is half invented by him and half invented by God. All he could do is divert those desires to some non-fulfilling object. The desire for wisdom was diverted to seek for notoriety. The desire for power diverted to seek for wealth or for force. The desire for love diverted to seek for sensual stimulation. The desire for beauty diverted to seek for adornment. Let me take the last one as an example. Do you understand to what, how shallow a fulfillment adornment is to the deep desire for beauty? That God gave us a deep desire for beauty, especially ladies, a deep desire for that. And then the Bible speaks about the beauty of holiness. And so how did the women of old adorn themselves, the holy women? Wasn't it with the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit? And you know, it's fulfilling. A woman with that ornament knows that she has a satisfying beauty. Satan can't get rid of the desire. But he can create a cheap substitute. Something that leaves the heart feeling like it didn't get quite what it's looking for. And that is adornment in this case. And so you look for more and more, hoping with plenty of it, you'll finally feel, but it, you won't feel fulfilled this way. Next slide. These two passages. Many are the enemies of Christ whose God is their belly. Romans 6, 18, 16, 18, speaking of those who fight against God's truth, they serve not our Lord Jesus, but their own belly. Why does the Bible speak of belly as a God? It's what we looked at already. It's because sin rules from the appetites, the passions, the desires. When sin has its throne there, then the belly has become the God of the soul. If Jesus is in the heart, he rules from the conscience, the appetite. When he's there, then he is the God of the soul. I just saw three yawns at one time. What am I going to do? Okay. Next. So, Romans 8. Minding the flesh, minding the spirit. Let's turn to Romans 8 and look at that for a minute. I think after this slide, I'm going to switch to the board and talking and see if this will keep us better. Romans chapter 8, and we are looking at verse 7. Start in verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What do we mean by minded? What is it to mind the spirit or to mind the flesh? We're talking about the will. If the will is looking for guidance to the higher powers, it asks questions like, what should I do? What kind of questions do the higher powers answer? They answer questions like, what should I do? What kind of questions do the lower powers answer? 
They answer questions like, what do I want? These questions help define the difference between being spiritually minded and being fleshly or carnally minded. But to be carnally minded is death. And if the Laodicean church would recognize how true this is, and then realize how often she's asking questions that are parallels to, what do I want? She would recognize in what desperate situation she is in. I'm going to relent and go to the next slide. So I didn't put there a verse, and the verses aren't in my head. But the Bible talks about children of God and children of wrath. The first one is is Romans 8, 14. We're almost there. Look at Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That's the idea. The sons of God are the ones that are following those higher powers. And who are the children of wrath? They are the ones who are following the appetites, the passions, the desires. I think this is almost the end of the ones I chose for this. Let's look at the next one. It might be. Yeah. So when we talk about the old man and the new man, when the Bible speaks about these phrases, I want you to understand the pictures where you can see it. What is the old man? He is the man, the way I was born, with my appetites and passions and desires being so strong that they overpower my will. So what does the inner man do in that case? Does the inner man still want to do right? It still delights in the law of God, but it can't follow through. What is the new man like? The new man is strengthened by God in the higher power so that it's set free. When I say a new man, why do I say less than 24 hours old? Because I have to die daily. That is, the Bible indicates that it is a daily experience to choose these, the higher powers over the lower powers to be strengthened by God in that part of the inner man. Daily, you could even say moment by moment, couldn't you? It's a continual experience so that the new man is always new. You can't have your new man for so long that it is an old man. Next. And yet this is a very important point. The new man is not safe. The old man is lost, but the new man is not safe. Adam and Eve were good examples of the new man. Lucifer, to whatever extent angels' natures are like our own, was a good example of the new man. Sinless perfection never has yet stopped someone from sinning. Next slide. So there are forces that operate in the human mind. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10, and we're looking at verse... Did I say 1 Corinthians 10? I meant 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, and looking at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, carnal, fleshy, related to the lower powers, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, 
casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I'm going to have to give you a little bit of teaching before we come to that slide. Follow me for a minute. What is my imagination for? In fact, I'm not worrying here because I think that I have a few slides that will help with this. And I might have to come back to this one. Just give me a moment. God gave the imagination as a means of helping me to benefit from events that are not near me. I can illustrate this simply. You know, I've never been to Calvary. But I sing songs like I've been there. Don't you sing songs like you've been there? But we've never been there. We've never seen it. And yet, to see Jesus on the cross, that apparently has quite an impact on the moral strength of man. The Galatians, it was amazing to Paul that they'd fallen away since Jesus had been crucified before their eyes. How do I see Jesus on the cross? That was the purpose of the imagination. I talked this morning in one of the first sessions about visualizing the judgment and and about seeing Calvary with the mind's eye. What we call the imagination and what is called here in the imagination is generically the mind. How are my thoughts directed? The imagination was designed to be a barrier against the influences of various forces. I don't know if I can illustrate. There's a better illustration than this of what I'm trying to say. Give me just a moment. And maybe I just don't have one. No, I don't. Okay, so someday in the future I'll design one, and right now I'll do it verbally. If... It might be, but it'll take too long to find it. I can do this better talking. If I'm going to benefit from the story of the flood or from the judgment or from Christ's second coming, if I'm going to benefit from these stories, I have to put my imagination on them. But my imagination is not used to being controlled. My imagination was trained when I was young by television to follow someone else's leading. I mean that television would be a disaster even if it only had wholesome people doing wholesome things, helping each other kindly. The disaster wouldn't be that they would be doing wicked things. It would be that my imagination was learning to guide my will and not my will to guide my imagination. As long as my imagination is being led by another, it's not being used by my mind as the tool God intended. And you see in the passage we just read, If imagination exalts itself, what does it exalt itself against? What does it say in 2 Corinthians 10? It's against the knowledge of God. Now turn to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter, and we're looking at chapter 1. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you by the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? 
through the knowledge of Him. How do I get grace and peace in this passage? You know, it's by knowing Jesus. How do I get the things I need for life in this passage? You know, it's by knowing Jesus. How do I get the things I need for godliness here? It's by knowing Him. And verse 4 here says, it's by knowing Him that we get exceeding great and precious promises. By these we partake of the divine nature. And then it says in the end of verse 4, I think you'll see it there, that's how we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. We're talking here about the same idea. Peter uses different words. What does he call being strengthened by the inner man? He calls it partaking of the divine nature. But doesn't it have the same effect on my experience? I escape the corruption that is in the world. But what leads to me partaking of the divine nature? It's knowing Jesus. If I can just try to say all these thoughts together, my imagination either uses me or I use it. If I use it, I place it where it needs to go on the judgment, on Calvary, on heaven, what's going on, the scenes that are there, on Christ's coming. If I use my imagination as a proper tool, it can allow me to benefit from the invisible, and that's called walking by faith. That's how I develop a knowledge of God. I can go back and look at the life of Jesus. With my imagination, I can put myself there and be transformed. The life of Jesus can have my attention. And while it does, I'm being changed by it. Satan knows the power of the imagination. What has he done? He's worked to turn the imagination not into a tool, but into a director. To lead the imagination to go its own way, to place itself where it wants to, either on perverted themes or on imaginary themes, maybe suspicious themes. Ellen White uses this phrase so many times, the disease of the imagination. Diseases of the imagination. If you'll email me, I'll send you an article I wrote on this called, uh, it's called The Faculty of Imagination. Do you know that suspicion is a disease of the imagination? When you're trying to think through what other people are thinking about you, when you are... When you're worried about the future, do you know worry is a disease of the imagination? God never intended that your imagination would take the lead and would begin to create problems in the future. That's not what it was given to you for. But isn't that what it does in worry? The imagination, instead of being used as a tool, it begins to use me. And when it does, it distracts me from the scenes it was intended to show me. That is, when it exalts itself, it exalts itself against the knowledge of God. If it does that, then it brings me in captivity to the law of sin. So, do you follow what I'm saying? Is it getting too complex? God made me just right with my desires, with my imagination, with my will, with my higher powers. And when they operate the way God intended, the new man is inclined towards holiness. And it's easy to live the Christian life. But that's not the way that we were born. We were born with a deranged system. We had the same desires. We had the same imagination. But those desires had exalted themselves to guiding the will. The imagination had become passive or at worst even directing, had become diseased. And the effect is that while the higher powers would say, this is the way, this is the way, yet we never went the way. 
You can go to the next slide. So with a diseased imagination, the will is captive. But with free will reigning under Jesus, imaginations are cast down to their proper level. The thoughts are brought captive to Jesus. Next. Many are inquiring how... This is the spirit of prophecy, steps to Christ. Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself to Him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you, but you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to man, it is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections. But you can choose to serve Him. You can give Him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Thus your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections will be centered upon Him. Your thoughts will be in harmony with Him. These two paragraphs just say what we've said all together. The will can be in bondage. But what happens when the will depends on God? For power. You know, there's an entire change, transition in man. We can go to the next. It's phenomenal. What is the new heart? It is the new mind. What is the mind? It is the will. This is the spirit of prophecy. Where is your will? It is either on Satan's side or Christ's side. Now it is up to you. Will you put your will today on Christ's side of the question? That is the new heart. It is the new will, a new mind. A new heart will I give you. Conversion is simple, very simple. Let us commence right here to come into the kingdom of heaven. How? As a little child, just as simple as simple can be. Now, when you know, I would read you a quote about how simple it is after giving you 25 minutes of lecture about how much there is to know about it. But it is very simple. If the will depends on God for power, then God strengthens the inner man. The will is set free. Jesus lives in the heart by faith. That is the entire transformation. The imaginations are cast down if we do follow through. The thoughts are brought into captivity. This is how Christianity is to work in our experience. Do you understand that it was more simple before Satan had changed our society? That I mean that we have really been perverted by the things that have happened to us in the last 20-some years of our experience? Next. So I want to talk to you about the cross and conversion. It is possible to put together a study on conversion that leaves the cross entirely out of the picture. I mean, Ephesians 3 that we read there and Romans 7 and 8. 
don't talk about the cross. And, it's, and the paragraph we read there in Steps to Christ doesn't talk about the cross. And when Abraham believed God, you know, he was believing the statement that he would be the father of many nations. But not even does that fact make the cross unnecessary. The cross plays a critical role in three of these important parts of salvation. One is by influence. By beholding Christ through the imagination, our love is awakened and we are moved to surrender to our Savior. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The second, the cross, its power to pardon. That is, if I became a Christian today, would that be enough to get me to heaven? It wouldn't atone for my past, would it? And so, in Calvary we have the fact that Jesus has paid for our sins. What we've been talking about so far is the third one. It's the experience of the cross. When Jesus said, Father, not my will, let's go to the next slide. Father, not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. When he went through this experience, that was exactly what I go through every day when I give my will to him. That is, the desires of Jesus, they clamored for indulgence just before Calvary. They were holy desires. A desire for life, is that a bad desire? A desire for justice, is that a bad desire? You know, it was holy desires that were clamoring there for indulgence. But the way they wanted indulgence was a way that would require transgression of God's plan. So that Jesus submitted to his conscience and said, Not my will, but your will be done. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. So many people have wondered why God would get nitpicky with such little things like how we eat and how we dress and our kinds of entertainment and the little minutia of life. Why? I'll suggest one of many reasons. It's because we're going to come to big tests in life. This test of the cross is coming. We might have it every day of our life. And we're going to have to start with little tests. To deny Jesus in the little things is the very type of practice and cultivation we need to develop the strength we need to deny... Did I say deny Jesus? It struck me with some look on someone's face. (laughs) To deny my appetites for Jesus in the big test will require denying my appetites in very little things now to develop and cultivate that kind of strength What am I trying to do when I deny my appetites and little things? By practice, I'm weakening those lower powers that my ancestry have developed for 6,000 years. By practice, I'm putting them back into habit. And you know, as long as they are strong, it's a battle to choose the right. But God has given me an opportunity to, to choose the right. And as I do, they begin to be put back into their proper place When that process is done, you know that happened in the life of Jesus? I don't know if you've read this in Hebrews, that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. It's not that he was disobedient first and obedient later, but by choosing to put his lower powers down and to listen to the strengthened higher powers, those lower powers were disciplined into shape. Until 
this is what it comes to us, there is an end in sight. When carrying out our own impulses will be the same thing as doing his will. Yet we won't be following our impulses because they're safe. We'll be following them because they agree with our conscience, our reason, our judgment. Let's go to the next. So we've talked about the cross, its influence. Go to the next slide. It'll be more about it. How does conversion work? We say it depends on the will, the right action of the will. But how is it that a will is ever motivated to choose the right? How much time do I have left in this period? 15 minutes? So here's how it works. The cross reveals God's love and character. The will is moved to surrender by God's love. The will is pressured to serve the lust by habit and by the power of the lust themselves. I haven't talked about habit. I need to go back to those slides. But the will chooses God's way. It depends on God's power. And that is when the miracle is worked. What was the part played by the cross? The first part played by the cross was to get the entire process moving. Let's go to the next slide. The cross removes the stain of guilt and sin. The Spirit strengthens the inner man. The will takes back its role of guiding the thoughts and the imaginations. Habit begins to change for the better. And no bang, the miracle is worked slowly. What miracle? The miracle of those lower powers being brought into discipline. Next. The cross continues to change men as they consider Jesus. The will takes back its role of guiding the thoughts and the imagination each morning. The new man is renewed daily. Habit eventually influences men in the right direction. The miracles work slowly, and then it is completed. I'm going to go back to those slides that we skipped. What we're talking about for the next few minutes, then we'll review the whole thing, are the forces that operate in the human mind. The biggest force that operates in my life is habit. Can you recognize that for yourself? That is, most of my decisions today weren't really made like this, that I thought about, here are my options, this is the morality of this one and this one and this one. Most of my decisions are made just because it was the same kind of decision I made yesterday. Faith and love are forces in my mind. That is, when I take God at his word, when I see his love, this moves me. If I don't take him at his word, this also moves me in another direction. When I talk about these three on the bottom, Jesus is a secondary source. By his spirit, he appeals to me. He speaks to me through conscience. The flesh is urging me with its desires these are forces that work in my life. F the flesh will operate regardless. What about Jesus and conscience? Do you see how their force depends on faith? If I don't take him at his word, it mitigates the force of what he has 
to say to me. So that unbelief, in a way, limits me to being influenced by my flesh. Does that make any sense? Should I try that thought again before I go on? I need the force of Jesus in my life. But the force of Jesus in my life, as it influences my mind, goes through the realm of faith. This is why faith is essential to conversion. Without faith, what Jesus has to say doesn't have an influence on my decision-making process, or not the proper one. Let's go to the next. What we've said so far, you could almost get the idea that doctrine is unrelated to conversion. Do you follow what I mean by that sentence? We've talked about the cross. We've talked about Jesus. We've talked about these things. And if we're just trying to get to heaven, it almost seems like you could skip a great deal. It really isn't so. God's love exerts a motive force on the human mind when it receives attention. That is, my habit is always urging itself on me. When does God's love have an impact on me? It's when I'm thinking about it. But there's something more to that. Let's go to the next slide. It's not necessarily God's love that urges itself in my attention when I'm thinking about God. That is, when I'm thinking about Calvary or thinking about Jesus or thinking about the judgment, these things affect me in relation to what I think about them. If I think that God burns sinners in hell forever, thinking about that will not have the same impact on my character as the truth. Do you follow the illustration? So that truth or error have an impact on... I don't know how to say that in a shorter sentence than the picture does. Truth aids God in changing my life. This is such an understatement that you could literally say, sanctify them through thy word, or through the truth. Thy word is truth. How does God change me? By bringing the truth into, my, into the realm of my attention, that's how I'm motivated to love and serve God. That is what moves my will to choose the right. But if something has my attention that's religious, but it isn't true, it won't have the same force on my soul. The next. So we're going to close with this one and then review. The forces that operate in my mind are my ideas of truth, my genetic tendencies, and my habits. I can't affect my genetic tendencies, but I can affect my habits, and the Bible can affect my ideas of truth. These three ideas are constantly operating in my experience. Faith and love, if my ideas of truth are right, will have a powerful influence, will allow Jesus to work and to teach me. Let me try to summarize all that I've said and then encourage you to read the handout and study it yourself. Is conversion simple? Conversion is as simple as simple can be. It's choosing the right. Then pray tell, why do we have evangelistic series that are four weeks long? It's because error 
fights against putting my will on Christ's side. Error is a distraction from what is true. When the will, when the imagination is running its own show, when my appetites and passions and desires have my attention, when they are controlling my experience, Jesus is largely shut out from having an influence on me. My faith and love for him might be spoken about, but they really aren't real. They don't grow. They don't move or change me. I have a hollow experience. The truth is what brings Jesus forefront, puts him in the center. Calvary needs my attention. If it doesn't keep my attention, I might have a new man yesterday, but he turns into an old man today. Conversion has to be a continual process of being moved by God's love to choose the right. The six of my five of my six periods will be a question and answer period. If you have questions on this, I'll be particularly interested to get them at that point. But there might be time for one now if someone had one. Yes. This business of understanding the truth so that it changes my character because I'm choosing the right is the process of being sealed. Yeah, and there's, when we talk about the sealing, have you, you remember, were you here for this morning? Some, some of you were for the study in the covenants. The new covenant, God writes the law in the heart, but it is not true that the law is written instantaneously. It's not that when a man is converted that the law is written there. If it was true, all the truly converted Baptists would be Sabbath keepers. Does that make sense to what I just said? How is the law written? It's as some part of the law gets my attention and my will submits to it by the force of habit and miracle, it's written into my character. That is, by the force of miracle, it starts to become a habit. That is the writing of the law in the heart. That is the sealing process. And when it is done, yes, then the person is sealed. That is exactly how I understand it. Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you will pardon me if I've made something simple to be complex. I thank you that if we give our will to you, that you make a new heart for us. I thank you for giving us desires and an imagination that would make it so easy to become holy. And I'm sorry for how we've allowed them to be used for such an opposite purpose. I'm dependent on you to remind us of those things you've taught us. And I ask for that continued gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.